0: Welcome to the Central Community Church podcast. We exist to be authentic followers of Jesus, leading others to follow him by loving God, loving people, and serving our world.
1: Good morning, it's good to be here. Exodus 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, let my people go that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Then they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Please let us go a three days journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with a sword. But the king of Egypt said to them, But the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, Thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves wherever you can find it but your work will not be reduced in the least." So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. The taskmasters were urgent, saying, "'Complete your work, your daily task each day, as when there was straw.' And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, "'Why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past?' Then the foremen of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, Why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given to your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks. And behold, your servants are beaten, but the fault is in their own people. But he said, you are idle, you are idle. That is why you say, let us go and make sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. The foremen of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, You shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task, each day. They met Moses and Aaron who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, The Lord look on you and judge, because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us.
2: Then Moses turned to the Lord and said, O Lord, "'Why have you done evil to this people? "'Why did you ever send me? "'For since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, "'he has done evil to this people, "'and you have not delivered your people at all.' "'But the Lord said to Moses, "'Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, "'for with a strong hand he will send them out, "'and with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land.' "'God spoke to Moses and said to him, "'I am the Lord. "'I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob "'as God Almighty.' But by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel whom the the Egyptians have enslaved, and I have remembered my covenant. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will bring you into the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. Moses spoke thus to the people of Israel, but they did not listen to Moses because of their broken spirit and harsh slavery. So the Lord said to Moses, Go in. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to let the people of Israel go out of his land. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am of uncircumcised lips. But the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron and gave them a charge about the people of Israel and about Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to bring the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. These are the heads of the fathers' houses, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, Hanok, Palu, Hezron, and Carmi; These are the clans of Reuben. The sons of Simeon, Jemuel, Jamin, Ohad, Jakin, Zohar, and Shal, the son of a Canaanite woman. These are the clans of Simeon. These are the names of the sons of Levi according to their generations. Gershon, Kohath, and Merari. The years of the life of Levi being 137 years. The sons of Gershon, Libni and Shimei by their clans. The sons of Kohath, Amram, Ishar, Hebron, and Uziel, the years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. The sons of Merari, Malai, and Mushai, these are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses, the years of the life of Amram being 137 years. The sons of Ishar, Korah, Nepheg, and Zichri, the sons of Uziel, Mishael, Elzaphon, and Sithri. Aaron took as his wife, Elisheba, the daughter of Amminadab and the sister of Nashon. And she bore him Nadab, Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar. The sons of Korah, Asir, Elkanah, and Abiasaph. These are the clans of the Korahites. Eleazar, Aaron's son, took as his wife one of the daughters of Putiel, and she bore him Phineas. These are the heads of the father's houses of the Levites by their clans. These are the Aaron and Moses, to whom the Lord said, Bring out the people of Israel from the land of Egypt by their hosts. It was they who spoke to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, about bringing out the people of Israel from Egypt, this Moses and this Aaron. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt, the Lord said to Moses, I am the Lord. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to the Lord, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me?
0: Thanks, guys. Yeah, can we give Tyler a round of applause just for pronouncing all those names? When I was in uh, Israel a few years ago, uh, you you hear people speak Hebrew. There's a lot of like, like when you're in the language. It's not a real graceful sounding language. I always kind of want to put a spit mask on everyone. So that's a good job, man. That's, That's a great job. So, we're continuing on in our sermon series, uh, Exodus, Exodus uh, chapter 5 and 6. And before we get into the text, I want to briefly go over kind of how we interpret the Old Testament. Now, bear with me for a second because this is very important. If you were to go to a library and take out a book on how to be a crazy and distasteful Christian, the first chapter of that book would be Misinterpret the Old Testament. Uh, That's really easy to do, um, but it's really important that we don't. All right? So, a few things about interpreting the Old Testament. Uh, the first thing, uh, I've heard it, have you heard it before, the analogy when people are trying to figure out the Bible kind of as a whole and you hear them say things like, well, the Bible is one big kind of love story. Has anyone heard that? There's truth to that, but I think it's ultimately a bit short sighted. It's a bit short sighted because I think the Bible is more than that. Um, to say it's a love story would kind of mean maybe it's it's a bit more about us than it should be the right way to read the bible whenever you open the bible old testament new testament is you should look at it as this is god's autobiography this is god his words revealing himself to us telling us what he's like that's the right way we approach the bible Everything, Every story, every genealogy, uh, every, everything, it tells us something about who God is and what he is like. And we need to do some work and to dig in to find that sometimes. But nonetheless, it's work and we need to do it. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 11, he says, All of the Old Testament stories, all the narratives that we read in the Old Testament, um, are for our instruction. So when we're looking at the Old Testament, we can look at it and go, okay, this is for my instruction. Okay, what went good here and what went bad? Right? We can kind of be armchair quarterbacks a little bit when reading the Old Testament. We can go, look at this guy's faith. Look how he had courage. Look how he was obedient. Look how he led well. Look how they were soft-hearted towards God and obedient. You know, okay, do that. Those are good things. That can be for our instruction. Uh, Look how this guy fell completely on his face. Look at what a fool this guy was. I don't want to be that guy. Don't be that guy. Be this guy. Right? We can look at the Old Testament as our instruction, Paul says. Um, it's good. And, and the most important thing that I want you guys to hear about this little short thing on how to interpret the Old Testament. Um, every word, every story, every poem, every narr- everything in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing or a backdrop to the person and work of Jesus. Everything. For example, take Exodus. Perfect example. Take Exodus. You have God's people who were rebellious, stubborn, hard-hearted. Because of their rebelliousness, they end up into really horrible, oppressive slavery. And God sends one man, Moses, and redeems them and frees them. Does that sound familiar? It should. That's the work of Jesus. Jesus. See, we're in our, in our hearts. We're rebellious. We're hard-hearted. We don't want to follow God. We don't want God to be our authority. And in our rebelliousness, we become slaves to sin. Really horrible, ugly, destructive, oppressive slavery. And then God sends one man, fully God, fully man, Jesus, to come and redeem us and to save us and to lead us to freedom. So you can see it's a really easy picture when you start looking at that, that everything in the Old Testament is a foreshadow, is a backdrop to the person and work of Jesus. It's really important that we do the work and we see that whenever we're reading the Old Testament. Um, we could really do a two-month, three-month, five-month course on how to interpret the Old Testament. That's all you're getting for now. So, um, As I was reading Exodus 5 and 6, um, I noticed something and I couldn't get over it. There is a real point of contention in this story, and I'm wondering if some of you have already seen it, some of you have already, as we are reading it, there is a real point of contention, something that um, will cause us to struggle and to wrestle with the truth. You see, Moses was given a command by God to go and to speak to Pharaoh, and we, we you know, heard last week about just kind of the wrestling that went on with Moses and his obedience He finally gets up the guts enough to do it. He finally says, okay, I'm going to be obedient to God no matter what this looks like for me. And he goes and he marches up to Pharaoh, who is a very powerful and very terrifying man. A lot of people um, kind of rose and fell under his very words. Um, Your life really depended on what kind of mood he was in some days. And so very terrifying, very powerful man. And God says, yeah, you go up to that guy (laughs) and you demand... That he allow my people a three-day pass to go and to worship me in the wilderness away kind of from Egypt. Three-day pass to go and to worship. And uh, so Pharaoh, okay, God, this is crazy, but I'm going to do it. He walks up to Pharaoh and Pharaoh says, yeah, that sounds like a, a you problem, not so much an us problem. Not only am I not going to grant you the three day pass, I'm going to make your slavery more oppressive. Because if you have time to go out on a little camping trip and to go worship your God, that must mean I'm not giving you enough to do. That's what that must mean. So I'm going to make your work harder. I'm going to make your life harder than it already is. You are going to weep, you are going to sweat you are going to suffer. Because the whole, the whole reason, I mean, the Hebrews, they were multiplying and getting bigger and bigger and Pharaoh wanted to just suppress them and push them down. To kind of knock the life out of them. You guys are just robots. You're just slaves. And so Moses goes, well, that went well. Think about that for a second. Just stop. Stop. And just think for a second. So Moses' obedience resulted in his suffering and the suffering of a nation. His obedience to God resulted in suffering. Wait a second. I thought that if I was obedient, I thought that if I did what I was supposed to do, that God should bring good things into my life. I thought that if I did what I was supposed to do and God, I was obedient and I did everything. God, I, I, I went to Bible study, I, I went to home group, I, I tithe, I gave my time and I gave my resources. Shouldn't good things then happen to me in my life? This type of thinking is actually quite prevalent in the church. It's quite prevalent in the church. At the core of this statement, at the core of these thoughts, is something called the prosperity gospel. Many of you have probably heard about it. And the bottom line of the prosperity gospel is this. If God is for me, and God, I'm God's child, he loves me, we have a relationship, that means then that my life should be blessed. And the way we define blessing, this is important, is health, wealth, and happiness. So if God is for me, I should be happy, healthy, and wealthy. And if things are going really, the opposite is true, if things are going really bad in my life, that must mean then that I have some kind of sin in my life that I haven't dealt with. It is so destructive. Because people take this garbage and they go home and they think, well, my loved one must have cancer because there's some unresolved sin in my life or their life. Can you see how destructive this way of thinking is? And some of us here, we hear the term prosperity gospel and our noses automatically go up. How can people be so dumb that they would believe in garbage like that? Like, you don't have to go to Bible college to figure out that that's not the way God works. That's not the way the Christian life works. You literally just have to open one page and go, yeah, that looks pretty bad. You don't have to be a genius. And we automatically kind of stick up our nose. But don't be so quick. Don't be so quick. I want you to do something for me. I want you to think about um, the last time you really suffered. I want you to think about the last time that you really faced some serious disappointment. The last time that things really didn't go well for you. That things didn't work out the way that you had planned. How did you react and how did you respond to that? Because that, my friends, is your theology. That is what you believe. So you may have a mental assent. You may have knowledge that, oh yeah, no, that prosperity gospel, that's garbage. That's, that, you know. But think about your response to suffering, to disappointment, to failure. Do you trust in God? Say, God, you know, I trust that you have a purpose and a plan in this. Or did you react some other way? We shouldn't put our nose up too quickly about the prosperity gospel. It is a real threat and you cannot dismiss it. That is something that we struggle with. This is the reason why some churches are closing their doors and putting for sale signs up. This is the reason, almost kind of especially in my generation, why it's an epidemic. Um, You know, People in their kind of mid-20s, late-20s, early-30s are kind of leaving the church in hordes and in, in herds. And I think this probably has something to do with it. Think about this for a second. You, you take someone with that mentality, that mentality that if I'm obedient and I check off all the check checkboxes of what it means to be a Christian, um, then God should bring good things into my life and I should be blessed. And we define, we, we've defined what blessing means. So you take that person, that young person who kind of grew up in Sunday school and and that person who kind of heard preaching and teaching that kind of really, maybe didn't sound quite like it, but at the base of it had the prosperity gospel. And you take that person and you kind of bring them into real life and you let something horrible happen to them. Let something horrible happen to them. What's the response you get? God, I just trust you through this very trying time. No, it's, God, how could you? How could you? I did everything I was supposed to do. I went to church. I gave my money. Like, I hugged the guy that had B.O. I did all of those things. I took myself out of my comfort zone for you. I spent years of boring, sitting in boring Bible studies for you i had numerous just awkward conversations for you. That money that I spent on, on, on giving to the church, I could have done so much other stuff with. I did everything for you, and this is how you repay me. This is what I get. I've had conversations with people like this, sitting across the table from me, and they say these things. Their reaction is not Faith. The reaction is not trust. The reaction is anger and disappointment and bitterness and ultimately disbelief and hard-heartedness. This is why, friends, our theology of suffering, what we think about suffering, is really, really important. Is really, really, really important. I've never once spoken to a preacher who had kind of prosperity gospel undertones in his preaching and he knew about it. We think, we're, we think we're preaching the right thing. When we teach our kids, we think we're teaching them the word. No one intentionally teaches their kids wrong things to set them up for failure. We don't do that. It is very subtle and it is a threat. We need to be careful. It's important to build that theological framework of suffering. God has a purpose for it in the suffering that you are going through now, in the suffering that you have been through, God has a purpose in it. You may not be able to see it. most cases, we don't right away. But God has a purpose in it. James uh, says this in chapter 1, verse 2. James uh, chapter 1, verse 2 to 4. He says, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, "'when you meet trials of various kinds. "'For you know that the testing of your faith "'produces steadfastness. "'And let steadfastness have its full effect.' that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Consider it pure joy when you go through suffering because, why? You will be complete, lacking in nothing. God has a purpose in suffering. So what I want to do is I want to take just a couple principles out of the story of Moses in 5 and 6. I believe that's the heart of the text. Take a couple principles out of... um, Exodus 5 and 6, and build a framework to help us build that framework. The first point is this nothing is beyond God's control nor above his authority. God does not answer to anybody. There is no one above him calling the shots, there is no one underneath manipulating him and trying to get him to do what they want him to do. God does not answer to anybody. No one is above his authority. Nothing is beyond God's grasp of control. God controls everything. This is what we mean by sovereignty. Nothing is out of his control. I have three kids. Um, my oldest is Cam. Um, we had a little episode this morning where he tried to cut his own hair. But despite that, des- despite that, um, he's just a really obedient kid. Like, even from birth. Like, he was just a good baby. He did everything he was supposed to do. Met all his milestones. Like, and it's just... You know, like, he's just got such a soft heart. Like, if he knows, like, I'm disappointed with him, um, like, he, he's just, he's, he's a wreck, right? I don't even really need to discipline him. He's just got a real soft heart. And we just had a baby girl five months ago, and I love my little baby girl, first little girl, and, I, and, and she, um, she's just a good baby. Like, I know has kind of caused me tons of grief and stress in about 10 years, uh, probably a lot before then, um, but she is just, she's a, such a good baby, does everything she's supposed to do. Like, just a good baby. She, she eats when she's supposed to eat. She sleeps. Like, we can go out for hours, and she's just, she's good. She's just content. Like, just a really good baby. And, uh, and then we have our middle child. <laughs> How many of you in this room are a middle child? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know. He's what we call our strong-willed one. Uh, sometimes I just like to call him a jerk, but he's our strong-willed <laughs> one. He's the most precious little three-year-old you've ever seen. Blonde hair, big lips, just like, you know, he's most affectionate out of our, you know, he just comes up and, Daddy, I love you, and, you know, without any prompting, like, just a real sweet kid, but man, he is, has a streak in him that is just rebellious, and he is the most strong-willed ever. He's, ha- he's had this little thing lately where um, he'll do something, and I'll scold him for it, and, uh, you know, sometimes we, we send him for, you know, grounding. Sometimes we spank him. So whatever stings at the moment for him. Um, and, and just a side to that. Parents, I'm not going to tell you how to discipline your kids. All I'm going to say is that it needs to sting. Discipline needs to sting or it's not discipline. <laughs> Continuing on. Um, you know, so we, we have this little thing. That he has this little thing that he's been doing where I'll say, Lawson, don't do that. And he'll look at me. There's a little cocky grin on his face. And they go, Dad, you're grounded. <laughs> <laughs> really? I'm grounded. And like, right, like it just rises up within me. Actually, buddy, like I'm the alpha male of this house and you are not. And like it's just like it's just something rises up in you and, you know, like challenging your authority, you know. Direct challenge to my authority. You know, and and so I I will continue on to do a little bit of a, you know, kind of theoretical discussion with my son to kind of try to persuade him that what he is saying is false. And so I'll say, Lawson, buddy, actually, Daddy's the boss, and you can't ground the boss. That's not the way it works. You know, and he'll just kind of look at me and go, well, Dad, Mom's the boss. (laughs) And at that moment, he kind of has me pinned. Like, I'm pinned by my three-year-old, because what do I say at that point? No, she's not. Oh, wait, no, So honey, I'm sorry. No, like... He's got me pinned. He's actually quite smart. But he's got me pinned and I can't say anything. But it's a direct challenge to my authority. There's no authority above God. And I believe this, is that dads, if you're here, listen up. It is your job to teach your kids. That's mom and dad's job too. I'll just kind of put the emphasis on dad here for a second. Dad, it is your job, your job to Create in your kids, to build in your kids a healthy fear of authority. A healthy respect of authority. Because if they walk all over you at home, what's going to happen is they're going to go to school and they're going to do that with their teachers. And if they do that at school with their teachers, then they're going to go in the neighborhood and they're going to do that with authorities in the neighborhood. I've been a cop for 10 years and I can't tell you how many times I've been told to take a hike by kids like 13, 14 years old. It happens all the time. Parents, you need to teach your kids a healthy fear of authority. That's all I'll say about that. So in Exodus, we, we know the end of the story, don't we? We know the end of the story. No matter how many resources that, that Pharaoh had, no matter how powerful, how terrifying, no matter, you know, no matter how just horrible of a man he was and how much power that he had, he got in the way of God's redemptive plan and in righteousness and in justice, God took him out didn't even have to lay a hand on them, just simply spoke. And they get swallowed up by the ocean. We know how that story goes. We know how the story ends. That's how, think about that for a second. Think about the the things that you've had in your life where you just, you're hopeless. You think, there is no way to overcome this. Like, my marriage is just so horrible. There is no way to overcome this. I am in slavery every single day to my You think about that. Like I am just in so much debt. I've made so much financial stupid decisions and I want to be obedient to God with my money but there's just no hope here. I've been at this dead-end job forever and it just seems like there's just no hope here and there, there's no way I'll be, ever be able to get out. Like think of some of the impossible situations that are in your life and things that caused you to suffer. And then think about this, that nothing is above God's authority and nothing is beyond his control. That should bring us a bit of comfort and put things into perspective just a little bit. God is powerful. In uh, Exodus uh, 6, verse 1, he says this to Moses. He says, you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. With a strong hand, he will send them out and drive them out of his land. You see, the slaves in Israel, um, or the slaves in Egypt, were, were Pharaoh's economy. Like, he, like the, 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 the slaves were building... His, his nation. They were his free workforce. So you think about someone running a country who has a complete free workforce of slaves and all they want to do is grow an empire and be bigger. And like You're not going to get rid of your workforce. You're going to hold on to that very, very tightly because that's a lot of where your power lies. So not only is Pharaoh going to let them go, God says, but he's actually going to drive them out. You think that's impossible. There's no way. If you're looking at that from just eye level, there's no way that could happen, God. There's no way he's going to just let them go. You're crazy. God says, watch what I will do. Watch what I will do. And a lot of times he says that's thus. You think you're in a just a possible situation. I called you to do something and you're suffering for it. Watch what I will do. Psalm 135 verse 6 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, he does. In heaven and in earth in the seas, in all the deeps. It's not whatever we please, he does. God is not our puppet. Whatever he pleases, he does. God does what he pleases. There was no authority over him. Nobody manipulating. Him. Genesis 50, verse 20. As for you, you meant evil against me. This is the story of Joseph. And really bad things were done to him. Genesis 50 verse 20, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Even though evil people intend evil things that cause a lot of death and destruction, God can take those evil things and turn them into something really good. That's what he does. That's how powerful that he is. He can take a horrible situation and turn it out for our good. And the Bible is littered with stories of that. Second Chronicles uh, chapter 20, verse 6. "O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. It doesn't matter if Trump becomes president. It doesn't matter if you voted for Trudeau because you liked his hair. And now you're really regretting your decision. It doesn't matter who is in charge. Nothing is above God's authority. Nothing is beyond his control. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations, including Canada, including here. In your hand are power and might so that none is able to withstand you. What this means is that if God wants something done, guess what? It's going to be done. You could take all the resources in this world to try to go against what God's going to do. I'm sorry, it's going to happen. Whether you want it to or not, God's plan will unfold exactly the way he wants it to. And there's nothing that anybody can do about that. So this means a couple of things for you and I. So we want to talk about kind of rubber hits the road kind of stuff here. A couple of things what this means. And I don't say this lightly. I don't say this lightly at all. For all of the suffering and the bad things that you've gone through in your life, God has done a couple things. He's either, number one, allowed it to happen, or two, he's ordained it to take place. For all of the suffering that is in your life, God has either allowed it to happen, or he's ordained it to happen. Because you think about it, okay, so God, nothing is out of your control, nothing is out of your grasp, nothing, yet sometimes I go through suffering. God has allowed suffering to happen in your life, or sometimes he even ordains it. So I want to kind of paint a bit of a context for that. God allowing suffering to happen means that sometimes evil people do evil things, and people suffer for it. God has given us free will. He's given us the choice. We can do good with our free will or we can do bad with our free will. More often than not, we choose to to do bad and bad things happen. And God honors our free will. He honors our free will. If He takes away our free will, do you know what happens? We become robots. Without free will, you cannot have love. You know, what if you went to your wife and said, Honey, I love you, but because I have to. Not because I want to, but because I have to. <laughs> yeah, not good, fellas. Don't ever say that. That's not love. That is not true love the way that God has depicted love. Love involves choice. It involves emotion, it involves feeling, it involves, but it also involves choice. And if God removes our free will, we are unable to love. And that's really the bottom line of what makes us human. What makes us created in the image of God is our ability to love and to choose love. But we take that free will and we do bad things. And so God allows it because he honors our free will. he's not gonna take that away. But you can't put the blame on God for that. Can't put the blame on God for that. There's lots of times I show up to a scene and one bad guy, you know, hits somebody and the person goes, how come you weren't here? How could you let this happen? I'm like, I didn't hit you. Like, I didn't take the baseball bat to your kneecaps. You know what I mean? I didn't try to collect the drug debt. I didn't try to do those things. That guy did. Be mad at that guy. I'm here to try to help and clean up the mess. It's the kind of same thing with God. Can't blame God for the evil that we do. Yes, He's created with free will, but there's a purpose behind that, a greater purpose. So God has allowed your suffering, and sometimes He even orchestrates it. I remember last time I was preaching, um, I told you a story about a buddy of mine. He's actually my neighbor, his name was Jay, big guy, looks like the Hulk. Um, So they had just moved in next door. And so um, basically, you know, we kind of knew his wife Susie's a social worker, and I kind of knew her a bit through work, and so. We didn't really know them at all, but so we said we want to get to know them. They're our new neighbors. Let's have them over for dinner, right? So Danielle and I are kind of getting the house ready, trying to clean up, kind of make a good first impression on our neighbors. And uh, and it was the week after Easter, and so we had this leftover ham in the fridge, and this ham was starting to kind of smell a little bit. So Danielle said, That's a blue job. Go and throw the ham. Deal with the ham, right? So I go, All right, blue job. I'm, you know, that's my job. Gonna do it. So I go, and I kind of take this ham, and I'm kind of like, Well, we live in the interior and there's lots of, we live in the rural interior so I don't want to really kind of just throw this ham outside because there's going to be animals and stuff that get it and like I don't really have time, I'm going to be here in like 15 minutes, I don't really have time to go like bury it or throw it somewhere away from my house. Like what am I going to do with this stinky big piece of meat? Like what am I going to do with this? I don't know what I'll do. I'll put it down the carburetor. Yeah, that'll work. I never said it was smart, like my goal is to make you feel better about your dumb decisions so that you can hear mine and feel better, so you're welcome for that. Um, So anyway, I take this ham and I begin to kind of put it down the carburetor and just (laughs) Sure enough, the motor stops and the water starts backing up out of the sink. And so at that moment I start to panic, right, because we have neighbors coming over, like my wife's going to be so mad, and I need to get rid of this, I I know what I'll do, I'll, I'll, I'll plunger it, I'll take a plunger and I'll try to plunger that sucker out of there. And so what happens is, I start plunging and the water between the ball of ham and, and, and the top of the sink pressurizes. And so I kind of like, okay, that's not coming out. And I, I'm trying to get the thing off and it won't come off. And I kind of brace myself and, and I pop it off and there's this like fountain of ham water <laughs> pouring out of my sink and it spackles all over the ceiling of my house, my popcorn ceiling. And it's all over me. And Danielle kind of comes in and it's all over her and it's all over her house and our house It's completely disgusting. It smells like dirty ham water. And, like, I've just blown it hard. Right? Like, this is, like, the worst way that you could, like, it was just brutal. And in the midst, and we hear, ding dong. (laughs) (laughs) So, like, we open the door, and it's, like, welcome to the Bursey household. Like, this is pretty much, like, an everyday thing. This is crazy in here. And what had happened was, like, our neighbors, like, they felt, like, automatically, we told them what happened, and they burst out laughing. Like, they didn't stop laughing for probably a couple of hours and actually came in and actually helped us cleaned up and, like, it was just this whole thing. But the beautiful thing about it was, like, you know when you're kind of meeting your neighbors for the first time and there's, like, a bit of a, a barrier, like, you're kind of feeling each other out and you don't want to give too much or you don't want to... You know, that, those were gone. Like, those barriers were just gone. And it's like, you are seeing the real deal here. Like, this is... We are exposed and vulnerable and this is our house and the real deal. And it just solidified our friendship so much right from the beginning. So that's kind of a silly story about how God practically worked in that scenario, but you even take the most more kind of serious, I guess, stories in your life, and you look at, you know, God uses and even ordains suffering for our good. For our good. God allows suffering, and sometimes even ordains it. So I want you to take those truths. Take those truths for a second in your mind, and I want you to pair them with this. Romans 8.28. And we know that for the good of those, uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8 28. Probably was in your coffee cup this morning. So, in order to define what good means, so God works for the good. So, in order to define what good means, we ultimately need to find the purpose. And the purpose is this the purpose is this the reason you exist the reason you draw breath, the reason that you are here, the reason, the, the, the core being of our existence is to worship God. At the base of everything, that's the reason we exist. That's the point. That's the purpose of your life. You know, you have people wondering sometimes, like, what's the point of my life? Like, just in the rat race, I'm just like, what's the, what's the point, God? What's the point of my life? The point of your life is to worship God. If you worship God with your life, you are doing what you were created to do. And I'm going to say something here and it might not sit really well with you, but just hear me out. And if you're going to write something, write this down. God's aim in all he does is for his own praise and his own glory. In everything that God does, it's for his own praise and his own glory. And some of you say, well, That sounds a bit egotistical. That actually sounds a bit arrogant. Really? But I want you to think about it this way. God seeking his own worship, his own praise, is actually the most loving thing that he can do. John Piper said this. He said, In view of God's infinitely admirable beauty and power and wisdom, what would his love to a creature involve? Or put it another way. What could God give us? Listen to this. What could God give us to enjoy... That would show him most loving. There is only one possible answer, isn't there? Himself. If God would give us the best, the most satisfying, that is, if he would love us perfectly, he must offer us no less than himself for our contemplation and his fellowship. So when we worship, some people reduce worship to kind of singing up here. It is so much more than that. Worship is the pouring out of yourself. Everything that you have, every resource, every thought, every feeling, everything that you have, the pouring out of yourself to God. That is true worship in response to what He has done to us. It's the pouring out as a response to what God has done. That is worship. That is the definition of worship. And when we worship God, we're in fellowship with Him. And that is what brings us satisfaction. That is what brings us the most joy. That is what makes us whole. That is what makes us complete. God is about his own worship. You see, he cares about you. He loves you. He knows your situation. He knows the only way that you will be complete and satisfied is by worshiping him. And listen to me. He will orchestrate things in your life to that end. He will orchestrate your circumstances. He will orchestrate things in your life to that end. Your suffering has a purpose. It will make you an authentic worshiper of God, which will ultimately end in your joy and your satisfaction. So quickly, what this means for us is that it's not about you. The most loving thing that I could say to you in regards to your relationship with God and with his people is that it's not about you. If you make your life about you, you will be miserable and you will miss out on the bigger picture that God has for you because it is not about you. When you worship God and you focus on him fully and you pour yourself out to him, that is where you will find joy. But I I don't really like the stage. It kind of looks like you went all out with the cross here but you got lazy here and didn't finish the cross. Like I kind of, I don't really like the stage. It's not about you. I don't really like the music. It's not really... I'm sorry. It's not about you. I don't like that little tuft of hair that comes out of Pastor Josh's shirt when he wears a low cut. I don't like that. I don't like... Sorry, friends. Sorry. <laughs> it's not about you. <laughs> Quickly, I was having a conversation with a, a gentleman. Uh, we'll just call him John. Out in the foyer there a couple weeks ago. And he's been going to this church... Longer than I've been alive, and so part of uh, you know what a leader does is he you know he'll dig into the past and and look at where have we been because only then can we decide where are we going. So I'm talking with with John and John's kind of saying you know like we are in a really good place now it hasn't always been that way. So I'm talking about like kind of what are some things that you know what I mean like you kind of really like or you really miss about kind of the way that church was. He's like well I really like hymns like we don't really sing a lot of hymns anymore. I just really love hymns. You know? and, and, and then he continued to say, so I'm expecting him, you know what I mean? Okay, he's going to start going off about hymns and how we need to go more old school and start talk, you know, playing more hymns. And then he says, but you know, if I want to listen to hymns, I can just kind of go home and, and listen to hymns. I don't, I, don't, I, don't need to, I don't need to hear that here. He's like, but when I look out and I see people authentically worshiping God and engaging God through music, he's like, that is a beautiful thing. And that is what I love. And John told me a couple things about himself in that moment. That told me that he was at a level of spiritual maturity where he valued the worship God over his own preferences. And my prayer for our church is that people like John, light would shine and would reflect to the rest of us that we would follow in their footsteps, that we would follow in that mentality. It's not about us. What we do here is not about us. The question you need to ask is, is this God-glorifying? Is this in line with God's redemptive plan and is this his will? Those are the questions you need to ask, not what do I like, what do people like. If there's any members of the lead team in here, any pastoral staff in here, listen to me. Guys, I know that it is really, like in any leadership position, people-pleasing is the hardest thing you have to deal with. And the most loving thing that we can say as a leadership team and as a pastoral team is to say, we love you, but we're not making this about you. We're making this about his praise and his glory for your good. That's what this church is about. The reason why our pastoral staff is excellent here, we have an excellent youth pastor, John Cornelson. Excellent, excellent youth pastor. The reason he is so good is because he has his eyes fixed on the worship of Jesus, not entertaining kids. The reason Pastor Matt's vision is so strong is because it's for the worship of God, not just building an empire. We need to ask the question, is this the will of God? He has a will, he has a purpose in your suffering. Not first about your circumstances, it's first about his worship, and that's what makes you whole. Guys, you can come on. And I know that some of us uh, this morning, um, you're going through suffering and deep things more than I'll ever understand or I'll ever know. Um, And I just want to read Exodus 6, verse 6 to you. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Listen to this. If you're going through suffering right now, this is for you. And I will deliver you from slavery. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. One day, friends, your suffering will end. That day is not today. But it will end. It might be later on today. I don't know, whenever God decides to come back and culminate all things. But it's not right at this moment. <laughs> but that's, that's the mist of life. That's the, the breath of life. Like, it just comes and goes so quickly. It's so fragile. And in that moment, either in your death or when Jesus returns, your suffering will end, and you will experience glory beyond your wildest imagination. That the momentary afflictions, the momentary pain and the suffering that you feel here right now, the angst that you feel right now, will be nothing, friends, nothing, compared to the glory that awaits you in heaven. Hold fast. Stay faithful. Trust in God that when you are going through the worst circumstances possible, that he has a purpose and he has a plan. And amidst suffering, cry out to him. And amidst grief, cry out to him. And amidst pain, cry out to him. That is what the Christian life looks like. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much um, for my church family, God. I love this church family. God, and I just pray that you would take hard words and just produce soft hearts. God, that we would trust you and we would turn to you. For those who are going through pain and sorrow right now, God, I just pray that you would lift their heads. God, that if it is your will and you, it's just if it's your will, God, that you would relieve them from their suffering. God, but if it is not, God, that you would give them the strength, that you would give them the ability to lift their heads and look to you and trust in you in the hardest moments of their life. Would you be with us, God? Would you turn our church into a group of people who authentically worship Jesus? God, not, we wouldn't come in here and be fake. We wouldn't come in here and put on a facade. God, that you would soften hearts. God, do what you have to do to break us. Even if it means just breaking us, do what you have to do, God, to produce soft hearts and authentic worshipers of God in this place. In Jesus' name.